0: Thank you. Great. That was wonderful. Uh, Glad to have you here this morning. And um, Well, I'm on good, Andy. Got some volume here. Uh, It's working. And glad for all of our guests that are here this morning. And, wow, we need to pray for all those that aren't here. Uh, Of course, I see some empty seats that would normally be filled. I thought I might give you just a little brief word of explanation on this Charlie Rollins that we're praying for. Uh, An email just came to BIMI. And said would you pray for this man he is my son's uh, father-in-law so I thought and he was from Whitwell Tennessee and that he was in the hospital in Erlanger uh, in Chattanooga so I said well I'll do I'll do one better than pray I'll go down and visit with him so I did and I learned a little bit about his situation and they were concerned about whether he was saved or not and um, I think that I pretty well nailed him down on that and that he assured me that he was he was a sa saved person. He was a believer in Jesus Christ, but he was to me he's your typical country fella from that area. He was very private. He didn't like outsiders, he said, and too many people trying to tell you what to do, he said. <laughs> so and he didn't have much to do with the organized church and all that sort of thing. But he read the Bible and um so based on that two twice he gave me the assurance that he was a believer. And uh, Lord willing, I'm going to go down and try to visit him again this afternoon. Uh, Surgery is supposed to be sometime this week, and he has so many physical problems, they just are afraid he may not pull through that. Second thing I wanted to say was um, um, now that we've started our missions fund, and it's growing, and I'm thankful for those of you uh, who are participating. and Of course, we emphasize this is something we do over and above our regular giving. We don't want to take away from what the church is already doing. So this is over and above what you regularly do. Well, I shared with uh, some of the men in the church uh, several weeks ago, one of my dreams for several years has been to get some of Arlen's book translated into other languages. And I just found out that Jason Perry, who's a missionary in Mexico, is working on putting Arlen's uh, works, some of them, into Spanish. And so uh, I haven't got all the story yet. I've, I called him back, and I didn't get an answer, and we haven't been able to make contact. But I want to find out more about that. I It would thrill me to see that be our first missions project, would be to help him in getting those printed, uh, or even to work in translation, whatever it might take there, for him to get that done. So if you'll be praying about that and thinking about that, and I'll get some more information on it and see what we might be able to do in the future on that. Well, we have a special this morning. Uh, Andy's going to come and sing for us. He was supposed to sing last Sunday, but uh, got back so late from his uh, grandfather's funeral and got a little raspy in the voice and decided he better not try to do that and put it off until this week. And while he's doing that, I get to go back and run the controls.
1: Not He's better not go. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Understanding is 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 that uh miss mary here has already given another one to start working on so uh maybe we'll get some more in the future that uh the the um second part of that in in the the medley the um one turn your eyes upon jesus uh holds some special meaning for me because it was uh, when i went back when i Lord began dealing in my life after I had trusted the Lord as my Savior, and then you know wandered around and done all those things, and finally, the Lord began dealing with me, and I when I went back to church, well, I think I've shared with you that I, how I went to my Sunday school teacher that I'd had years ago and spoke with her, and she invited me to church. Well, it just so happened she was singing a special that morning, and it was "Turn your eyes upon Jesus," And that one's always stuck with me ever since all right well let's turn to the gospel of luke this morning gospel of luke and chapter 13 and um let's we'll begin at verse 10 i think we'll read this entire passage all the way through to the end of the chapter i doubt seriously if we'll finish that so don't don't want to scare anybody but uh if we don't finish it, I'll maybe I'll come back and finish it again next week. I don't know. Uh there's an awful lot there. And the problem I I guess one of, I've told you I have well you already know you already know I have trouble quitting. Uh my problem is is I just see all these things fitting together and I said, Well how can you leave that out? I mean this all fits, it connects, you know, and I hate to stop at a certain place because if I do and you're leaving this out, and you got this such a large picture of all these interconnected things. And to me, when you get to see all that and you begin to see that bigger picture, that adds adds such a dimension to your faith and such an understanding to the Word of God, and it gives a completeness and a fullness to that which you believe in, that which you have determined to, uh, or the one you have determined to follow, which is Jesus Christ, is... Uh, We saw in our Sunday school lesson this morning. Well, let's begin reading with verse 10. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity, 18 years, and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work. In them, therefore, come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite. Doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound lo, these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed. And all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Then said he, Unto what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew, and it waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the strait gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut the door... And ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, How often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, Ye shall not see me until the time come, when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, I read all that. I hope by doing so you see the vital connection that this incident with this woman has with the whole context of this passage here. And, of course, the Lord is teaching uh, regarding the coming kingdom, the Messianic kingdom, that time that that was promised Old Testament by God in which he would send a prince or a messiah who would deliver his people Israel, subdue all the enemies of Israel, and bring about a a condition upon the earth in which righteousness would prevail. Peace would cover the earth. Justice would be done in all matters of of government and dealings with men. And here in this particular instance, in dealing with this woman on a Sabbath day, uh, which is important, by the way, because we, as you know and recall, that many, many of the miracles which Jesus uh, did were done on a Sabbath day. As a matter of fact, if you just look, uh, back briefly, even here in, the, in Luke's Gospel. Turn back to chapter 4, if you would, for a moment. And just we'll just look at a couple of these, just so we get the idea of what is going on, what's occurring, and why this becomes important, that he did these miracles on the Sabbath. Verse 31, chapter 4, verse 31, he says... And came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil, and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to, to destroy us? I know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God." And Jesus rebuked him, saying, "Hold thy peace, and come out of him." And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him, he came out of him, and hurt him not. And they were all amazed, and spake among themselves, saying, "What a word is this! For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out." And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. But we saw in verse one, or the first verse we read, chapter uh, four and verse thirty-one, that he was teaching and preaching on the Sabbath days. And so, on the Sabbath day, they were in the synagogue, and here was this man whom Jesus uh, delivered from an unclean spirit and and rebuked him, and so on. Then, if you just turn over two chapters to chapter six, (coughs) and at verse six. In chapter 6 and verse 6, it says, And it came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught, and there was a man whose right hand was withered. Well, we won't take time to read the rest of that. You know what happened, how he stretched out his hand and he healed him on the Sabbath. Then, if you will turn over to our chapter, chapter 13, we'll actually go one beyond that, to chapter 14. If we would have continued reading... After the end of chapter 13, beginning at chapter 14, verse 1, we would have found another incidence there. And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go, and answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. I'll tell you, of course, you would say, well, what else would you expect? But the Lord sure backed them into a corner, uh, and they had nowhere to go. They were acting contrary to their own law. And, of course, they had built up over centuries uh, traditions of oral law that was passed down by the rabbis that held no weight biblically whatsoever. Now, in this particular instance with this woman in chapter 13, just a couple things that I would like for us to note in this, this whole incident here. The first one is in verse 12. When Jesus healed her, he said, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. Now, verse 11 says she was bowed together. In other words, she was just bent over double. And you've seen people walking around. I mean, she was just totally bent over, and it says she couldn't straighten up. But when Jesus loosed her, she was able immediately to stand up straight, just instantaneously. And it wasn't like somebody having surgery, you know, where they have to do a lot of therapy and do a lot of massage and get yourself all worked up to where you can finally stand up straight. She just stood up straight immediately. She was healed. Now, if you look at verse 15, it says there, The Lord then answered him and said, You hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, loose his ox or his ass to take him to get a drink of water? Well, of course they did. The law allowed for that. They had this uh, rule, you know, that you couldn't go more than uh, uh, I think it was two thousand cubits, about six tenths of a mile, that you could walk on a Sabbath day without being in violation of the Sabbath. So you could loose your animal to get a drink of water, but they didn't want Jesus to heal this woman. Matter of fact, they didn't want him healing anybody. They didn't want him stretching out a man's arm that was withered and healing that. They didn't want him casting out devils on the Sabbath day. But the Lord did it anyway, of course. Now, if you look at verse 15, he says over there, he tells us why this woman had this infirmity or this weakness. That's all the word infirmity there means. She had a a spirit of weakness. And it says there that Satan had bound this woman for 18 years. She was in this condition. And it was all because of Satan. And he makes, you know, all he does is speak logic to him then. If you can free your animal to get a drink of water, why should not this woman, who is a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, be loosed also? So you see the connection there, this word loosed, this freeing up of being in bondage and the fact that she is a daughter of Abraham. The same as when Paul spoke about being a son of Abraham. Or in the book of Romans, talking about one who has Abraham's faith. The one who has the faith of Abraham, he's the true Israelite. He is the true Jew. He is the true believer today. The one who has the faith of Abraham. That's what this woman had. She possessed the same faith, the same hope in God through his promised Messiah that you and I hope in today. Now, following on that, um, he begins speaking on things concerning the kingdom and what's it going to be like. And, of course, he compares it to the mustard seed or the mustard tree and leaven and those things that will, that will occur uh, concerning leaven and uh, these things that will affect the kingdom and its, its prosperity. Well, I wouldn't know if I'd call it prosperity, but the progression of the kingdom uh, and the things that will affect it. Uh, that is it would grow very fast and mushroom and and so on and into a a quickly blooming tree like a mustard tree does or mustard seed, and then the leaven of course, permeating the whole thing that just like uh, yeast put into a, a bowl of dough and so eventually it will affect every part of the of the dough, so also this leaven, which is uh, in the kingdom, will be permeated throughout and affect the entire kingdom. I just glanced into a a little commentary this morning uh, that said now leaven always, you know, almost always in Scripture has negative connotations to it. But in this instance, we probably should look at it as being a good thing. Now, why men want to go contrary to everything else the Scripture teaches about leaven, I don't know, except for unbelief. But it has the same connotation here that it has everywhere else in Scripture. Leaven represents sin. That's why during the uh, following Passover, uh, and uh, they experienced the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in which they were to cleanse their homes. They were to get rid of every possible uh, bit of leaven out of their homes for an entire week. And they were to not eat any leavened bread, none whatsoever. And if you've ever had unleavened bread... It's not that great. <laughs> You've got to put a lot of stuff on it to make it taste good. Uh, plain, it just doesn't have the same flavor that yeasty bread does. I can tell you. I've tried it. Um, well, in doing this now, of course, you remember in verse 22, he's, he, in all these things, in this teaching, he's on his way towards Jerusalem. He has a purpose in mind, a goal which must be accomplished for which his heavenly father sent him here. Now, in all of this context then, and just consider what's going on as Jesus is teaching about the kingdom, in light of all of that, then, the disciples ask him, well, Lord, are there few that be saved? And so you have to take that word saved in the context in which it is given. This word saved is in the context of the kingdom. The coming kingdom promised by God Himself that would come to Israel. And so there, the question given in that context has to do with the kingdom. Are there few that will be saved to enter into or participate in the kingdom? Now, in Jesus' answer, you know, He answers the very question He asks. He says, strive. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter it and shall not be able. Now look at the obvious reverse of that. If many are seeking to get into it and will not be able, then it's obvious most won't get in. That it's only, it only will be a few who are saved in the sense in which this one here asked Jesus about the kingdom. Will there be few saved? That is, will there only be a few who will actually enter into the kingdom? Another thing we ought to notice right away is he says strive to do it. Striving to enter. This is something absolutely contrary to what Brother Jerry brought out in Sunday school class this morning when he shared Acts 16.31 which says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Something that it was, he pointed out was aorist tense, meaning it was punctiliar. It's a point in time thing that we do. We believe at a point in time. And he says, you do that, and you're saved. You'll be saved. Here, the Lord's telling this one here, and those accompanying him on the way to Jerusalem, you need to strive to do this. And that word strive there means to put forth a lot of energy, a lot of effort. Agonizomai. We know what the word agony implies or connotes to us if we're talking about pain, if we're talking about struggling, whether it's in an athletic contest or whether we're on the job struggling with some heavy load or some such thing as that, it requires a lot of work. And so there is effort involved in entering the kingdom because he says many are going to try, but they're not going to be able to. Now, in verse 25, when once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, you know, He's just going to say, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. It's like when one of the wealthy citizens of Israel was having a banquet at his home and the guests had arrived and he shuts the door and you arrive late. You know, he just may not let you in. Now, the picture we get in the New Testament is is, he won't let you in. I'm speaking from an earthly perspective. He may not let you in. But he says, you won't get in. I don't know you. And that tells us something about the authority of the one who shuts the door. The authority of the one who has the right to deny you entrance into his kingdom. And that's the master of the house. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. If we went back to Hebrews chapter 3, we would find that there are the writers comparing Moses and how he was a ruler and a servant over his house with the Lord Jesus Christ who is a servant in his house. Whose house we are, he says, if. If you continue. It requires us to continue to maintain a walk with Christ A relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in order to enter that kingdom. This one he's talking about right here. Now, in the 26th verse, he says, you know, once he denies you entrance, then you're going to start arguing with him. And you're going to come up with a reason why he ought to let you in. And, And you're going to say, well, we've eaten and drunk in your streets are uh, in your presence, and, and you've taught in our streets. And then his answer to them is going to be, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. I don't know where you're from. I don't recognize you as being one of my own. And so then his response to them is going to be, Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. These things, and of course, if we were to go back to a, a parallel passage in Matthew chapter seven, we find there that those who sought to enter in in the, when they argued with the Lord, they said, "Well, we've done this and this and this, and we did this, and we and name all the things that they have done that ought to qualify us. Why surely, Lord, you would recognize these good things we have done that we might be participants in your kingdom. But he calls them workers of iniquity. Now, turn back for a moment to Psalm, this book of Psalms, to the sixth one. Actually, we can actually start in the fifth Psalm. Psalm five, Psalm six. These are both psalms of David. <clears throat> Look at verse four of Psalm five and verse four. He says, "For Thou art not a God that has pleasure in wickedness; neither shall evil do what dwell with Thee. Evil cannot." Abide in the presence of the Lord. So in verse 5, he says, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Now look at Psalm 6. In verse 1, David says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. Now, I don't know if this is a one one commentator entitled this uh, psalm here, Double Trouble. It appears that, that David had a physical infirmity of some kind. He's crying out for the Lord to heal him. He says his bones are, are vexed and he's weak. But later on, we find out he has some enemies as well. In verse 3, he says, My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O oh, save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? In other words, it looks to me like David's pulling out every last straw here and he's saying, Lord, you know, if I'm alive and you heal me, then I can just lift my heart in praise and my soul in song when I go down to the temple. I'll sing out with gladness and joy and thank you before all the people and they're going to hear praise and thanksgiving given unto you. But if I die and I go to the grave, quiet. Nothing. Nobody's going to give thanks unto you. Nobody's going to praise you if I die. Well, in verse 6, he says, I'm weary with my groaning. All the night long make I my bed to swim. He must have had a lot of perspiration, soaked that bed, uh, just in sore distress over the physical calamity that had fallen upon him, upon the, the, the uh, well, those who were against him, those who fought against him in his kingdom all during his time that he was on the throne. He says, I water my couch with tears. My eye is consumed because of grief. It waxes old because of all mine enemies. I mean, David was just flat wore out. Apparently, physically, he was wore out. And in the depths of his soul, emotionally, he had just had it. And so he cries out to God with this prayer, God, heal me, deliver me, save me. But notice how quickly things turn in verse 8. I mean, once David has prayed this prayer, his heart is filled and overflowing with the confidence of a person who knows God's going to answer his prayer. And so he says, depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. David felt so confident that God was going to answer his prayer that he could boldly speak up to all those who were against him and say, get out of my presence, depart from me. And so he says, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Well, that's exactly what happened in the synagogue on the Sabbath when the Lord healed this woman and he put to shame those who were against him, those who didn't want him healing on the Sabbath. Now, it's interesting. I, have a, I use a Ryrie study Bible here. I don't know if any, anyone else here does. Oh, well, I think my wife has one. I gave her one. He has an interesting note here on verse 8 where it says, Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. He says this, David speaks as a king purging his kingdom of evildoers. Jesus quoted the verse in a similar way. And then he gives Matthew 7 and, of course, the uh, Luke passage here as a reference to that. Well, you see, that's exactly, that is, I think he's exactly right. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is eliminating, removing from his presence workers of iniquity. All those who are wicked, all those who are his enemies will be removed from his kingdom. Not be allowed to enter. And these who thought they had the rights to enter are going to be turned away. And so these, on the Sabbath... Who were standing there in a righteous way, and this of course was particularly here, the Sabbath, or the synagogue ruler, not wanting Jesus to heal on the Sabbath, upholding the traditions of the law, and Jesus just shot him down, shot him to pieces, silenced him, because he went ahead and healed this woman and says, Look, she is a daughter of Abraham. She has a right to be healed. If anybody does. Now, we asked the question earlier, why on the Sabbath? Well, if you were here again in Sunday school class, you would have found out why. Because Jerry already took us to that verse, and I was already going to head there this morning to the same passage in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. And so we won't turn there. I'll just briefly relate what happened there in the account of creation. It says there, the Lord created heaven and earth and so on in six days, and then on the seventh day he rested. And then if we understand those six days of creation and that seventh day of rest is representing 1,000 years each of the history of the world, then we will understand that this coming seventh day that Jesus speaks of Or the coming day of rest in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 is this coming seventh day. It's the coming Sabbath. And so Jesus was perfecting a picture here. He was pointing out that healing will take place on the Sabbath. And so when I come to rule, when Messiah comes to establish his rule upon the earth, then there will be healing upon this earth. And all injustice will be done away with. And of course every time he healed on the Sabbath. That's the picture that was being painted. That was the picture that was being presented to Israel. But Israel steeped in their religious tradition. Rejected what he had to say. Not only did they reject what he had to say. They rejected him. And then they crucified him. So depart from me all you Workers of iniquity. If we were to turn to Galatians chapter 5. There the Apostle Paul says that if we will uh, walk in the spirit. He says then you will not fulfill the lusts of your flesh. For the lusts of the flesh are and then he names several things there. I think the list is like 16 or 17 or 18 things that he names, that are works of the flesh. And he says, if you do those things, he said, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So in order to have an inheritance in the kingdom of God, in order to have a right to enter in or to participate in God's coming kingdom, means that we must not do the works of the flesh. We must do those works that will be accepted by the Lord, that will be pleasing unto him, And that will honor him. Because I can tell you now, based on his word, that there's nothing that we can say at that day that's going to convince him otherwise. It is only on that day when the works of our hearts will be revealed for what they are. And so it behooves us then to establish a relationship with the Lord. To be very careful, as Paul Paul says, to maintain good works. He told Timothy to do that. Matter of fact, he told Timothy to command those that are rich to be careful to maintain good works so that they might lay hold of eternal life or messianic life. So if there, if we want to have the hope of participating in his future rule over the earth, if we want to know the blessings of, of all that's going to transform this earth into a place of peace and righteousness and perfect justice, then we need to be acting now. And we need to be preparing ourselves now for that coming day. Because, indeed, he will judge each one of us according to his works. And if we don't do so, then he says there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. On the day that we're rejected, we're going to walk away very, very disappointed. Because we're going to realize, you know, we may, we may think we, we can cut corners today. But on that day, we're going to realize what we've forsaken. On that day, we're going to realize what we missed out on. And we will be very disappointed, very sorrowful. And so may I say today, unite your heart with the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow in submission to him and accept him as Lord of your life. And I speak to Christians. It's only a Christian that can do that. See, an unregenerate person cannot bow before the Lord and accept him as Lord of life. An unsafe person must come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith alone. That's all he can do. And when you come in faith alone, and God does that work in your heart, and of course I've just spoken the words that I wanted to say, is that he is the one that does that work. See, you and I can't do that work, that's the one he does. He performs the work in our hearts. When we come to him in faith, in that aorist tense, faith, punctiliar, when we say, hey, I believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He's the Son of God. I believe that what he accomplished on the cross in paying for sin was for me. But then there comes a time when we need to recognize who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he's ultimately going to accomplish on this earth. And there is coming a day when he is going to come back, and he will establish rule over the earth. Now, if you want to just put it in the vernacular, yeah, he's just going to take over everything. He's going to subdue every enemy. Every nation of this earth will be brought under him. Doesn't matter what the European Union's doing. Doesn't matter what NATO's doing, or the uh, not the League of Nations. What is it now? The other one. Uh, what is it? Not in, yeah, United Nations. <laughs> I'm trying not to give my age away. I wasn't, I wasn't living back there when it was League of Nations. That's all that would come to mind, though. All those things have no, All that stuff just going to go poof. It's gone. It means nothing. Because the Lord is going to take over. And he will assume his rule over this earth. And everything then will be brought under his control. And then he will rule with a righteous hand. And when that happens, there's going to be a peace and a joy that will flood this earth and a transformation that will take place over this earth like it's never seen before, not since the Garden of Eden at least. And so then we will realize, then we will realize what we've missed. Then we will have weeping and gnashing of teeth. If we have not given ourselves to the Lord now, To be accepted of him. He says in verse twenty nine, those come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. That's speaking of all the Gentiles, those who would come to believe in Christ, those who would accept him, those who would make him Lord of their lives, and who would participate in that and by the way, and to sit down in the kingdom of God, that implies to us a great supper, a great feast. I like one guy who said the, 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 uh, the millennium is going to be like one big party. Well, not in the party that you and I tend to think of. But when you think of a party, you think of joy. You think of gladness, happiness. You think of all the good things that are happening. A party is not a place for sorrow and mourning. A party is a place for joy. And that's what's going to happen in the kingdom of God. It will be like one 1,000-year wedding feast. And those wedding traditions where they have a feast, a wedding party that lasts for seven days, pictures exactly what's going to happen. This is going to occur on the seventh day, that day of rest. And so he tells them, there will be those those which are last shall be first, and there are those who are first who are going to be last. Those who are last are going to be doing the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. The last are going to be filled with sorrow. The ones who are last now, though, the ones who are last in this life will be the ones first in the life to come they are going to to be the ones who will experience the privileged positions of sharing in the rule of Jesus Christ over this earth. Well, how I would enjoy continuing on. Verse 28, let me make one last comparison here, a note of interest. In verse, verse 28, when he says, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. Did you notice, remember back over in verse 16 with this woman? He calls her a daughter of Abraham. Hey, we can expect to see her there one day. We're going to know who this lady is one day. If we're as faithful as she is, if we have the faith of Abraham that she had, and I trust you do today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege of knowing you, and we thank you for the privilege of knowing your word. And Lord, I pray that as we consider what we have read today from your word and what we understand from your word um, and throughout the entire ministry of the Lord Jesus as he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom to his disciples and to Israel and to those about, and then as the uh, the apostles and other disciples later began to carry that same message after his, uh, after his death, burial, and resurrection and his ascension into heaven, we just pray that we might be faithful to do so as well and that we might be faithful to believe it to accept it and to understand what the dire consequences would be for us who reject and turn away or just treat it lightly and neglect it, as many of Israel did. And So I pray that you'll speak to our hearts today as we have this brief invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our invitation this morning, we'll just give a brief invitation, but it will be twofold. It's for those who do not know the Lord as their Savior at all, you can come and trust Him today. But if you need to you know, just make that, that firm commitment of surrender to Christ and make Him Lord of your life, and you want to make it public, you don't have to. I didn't. But if you want to make it public, you can, and a lot of people do. It helps seal that decision for you. And if you'd like to do it, then we want to invite you to come today too. All right, let's turn to hymn number 366. I surrender all.